as you rightly say, the perception is that whether consciously or unconsciously, mm-hmm. um, uh, that women are responsible for the majority of infertility cases. But actually, the opposite is true. Globally, 35 to 45% of infertility cases are male only. About wow. 30% are female only, and the rest are a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you look at um, the fertility of the human population as a whole, it's the the rapidly declining fertility of men that is going to be the biggest issue. So the global sperm count has halved in the past 30 years. It's dropped by 50%, and it's trending to zero by 2040, which oh means that by 2040, the majority of couples will struggle to conceive naturally because the sperm count on average across the male population will be zero. And wow. the reason for this is... <laughs> All right. Welcome back. This is Tell Me Why. I'm Maria Botros. And, um, you know, we always enjoy discussing health and well-being, women's health specifically. And today's guest is uh, Sophie Smith, who is the founder and CEO of Napta Health. And today she's going to be talking to us about anything and everything related to a woman's health, from the insurance policies that companies have to offer to um, menopause, puberty. We're going to try to discuss as much as we can today. And obviously, if there's something that we we don't necessarily have time for, we will always bring her back if she has the time for us. She has the time for you. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Sophie, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me, Maria. Yeah, no, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, before we get started, I want you to tell us, me and the audience, um, about yourself. So are you a doctor or did your concept of NAPTA Health just come out of the fact that you are a woman and you noticed some gaps and you wanted to fill those gaps? Um, That is precisely where the concept of NAPTA came from. Um, Maybe to give a little bit more context. So um, I have parents who are doctors. Okay. Um, My father until recently was the National Clinical Director of Diagnostics for the NHS. So very senior in diagnostics. And Mm -hmm. without a doubt, that's where my interest in diagnosis comes from. Okay. Um, But I have a business and technology background. And before I founded NABTA, I'd actually gone through the process after leaving Accenture in 2014 of setting up a number of businesses, all in the impact space in quite quick succession. Mm -hmm. So NABTA was actually my fifth company in four years. That was not about setting up a lot of companies. It was about trying to find the thing that I really cared about Mm -hmm. and the business that was right for me. So we moved here in September 2016. I had... Um, I was newly married. I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, I had just set up a company in Sierra Leone that does waste plastics to roads. Um, And I moved here and I thought, uh, I need to do something locally. Sierra Leone is 24 hours one way from the UAE. Yeah, Um, It's not a particularly pregnancy um, or new baby friendly place. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, I want to do something that is really relevant and impactful here. And I went to speak at a conference in Kuwait on diabetes and got chatting to the organizer, not about diabetes, but about the fact that I was pregnant, Mm -hmm. which he found unusually fascinating. Okay. And about a month (laughs) later, he sent me a whole load of stats on women's health in the region and said, do you want to do something in women's health together? And I still remember very vividly receiving this presentation and these statistics. I was sitting in the impact hub in Sukabaha and... The stats were the stats were obviously poor. Okay, eighty percent of breast cancers diagnosed at stage four, 
which has a 27% five-year survival rate versus diagnosis at stages one and two. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite way around in the UK. 80% of diagnosis right. at stages one and two. 40% of women in the MENA region were not attending a single antenatal appointment, mm-hmm. which meant that, you know, if you were at risk for things like gestational diabetes, preterm births, preeclampsia, that wasn't being picked up. Um, a lot of women were miscarrying mm-hmm. um, where they didn't have to. Mm-hmm. where there was no reason for them to miscarry a lot of taboos a lot of stigma i mean mm-hmm. we're talking we're talking 2016 pre covid yeah. um pre a lot of the a lot of the the movement that we've seen in the region over the past few years right and uh and I, as soon as i saw this deck i thought yes this is the company that i want to run and that okay. i hope i will be running actually for the next 30 years okay um but- i asked for a bit of time to have my baby okay. hand of my existing business interests um, in the end we started now to the day my son was due so 21st of March 2017 amazing that's a nice start anyway um, but I just want to go back to the fact that you were saying you know the statistics were shocking and you found that the research was was kind of I don't want to say weak but it w- there wasn't enough let's yes. say at the time why do you think that was why do you think that was the case so it was one of these things that the more you dug into it kind of the more shocking the statistics were and the more gaping the hole. Mm-hmm. Um, women were largely excluded from clinical trials globally until 1993. Okay. Um, and you could argue that this was done out of a, a sense of sort of fiduciary and responsibility towards women. Mm. They didn't want to impact female fertility mm. by including them in trials for things that could affect that. Mm. But the result was that most of what we have in medicine still today was designed for and tested on predominantly white men. Male, yeah, male figures. Um, And still today, only 19% of clinical trial participants are female. So there's a big gap Mm. in in terms of gender equity in healthcare. Women are four times, uh, it takes four times longer to diagnose women with the same chronic diseases as men, despite the fact that they're twice as likely to see a doctor in the first place. There are a lot of other stats that highlight the gender disparities. And then if you if you build on top of that the fact that 92% of trials are held in the US and Europe and the remaining 8% are mostly held in the Far East where they have to be demographically representative, only a tiny percentage of the of the of the 19% of clinical trial participants that are female are of Middle Eastern, African, and South Asian origin. Wow. And you see the result of this even more in the health outcomes. Mm-hmm. So if you are a woman of African origin in the United States, you are four times as likely to die mm-hmm. during pregnancy and childbirth than a white Caucasian woman. Mm-hmm. If you um, were a woman of Pakistani origin, you were three times more likely to die with COVID than a white Caucasian woman. And the only way that you address these systemic gender and racial biases is not by building in the US or building in the UK or building in Europe or building in the Far East where you would have to be demographically representative. It's by building things by and for women here where the minority populations of the US are the majority. Of course, yeah. So you mentioned this, and this was actually my next question, the systemic gender and racial biases. 
I know that you, part of what you're doing with NAPTA is you're trying to tackle these biases and you're trying to sort of counter these biases. So can you tell us a bit more, like what are some other biases that we spoke about this before the show, actually, we were speaking about infertility and um, we, I would, because we just had a guest recently who came in and talked about infertility and he was saying one of the main misconceptions is that people think in, when they hear infertility, they automatically think women. They automatically think that it's in the woman rather than also shared by the man. So can you tell us some more biases and tell us about the statistics when it comes to infertility? So infertility is a really good example, actually. Um, as you rightly say, the perception is that whether consciously or unconsciously, mm-hmm. um, uh, that women are responsible for the majority of infertility cases. But actually the opposite is true. Globally, 35 to 45% of infertility cases are male only about wow. 30% of female only, and the rest are a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you look at um, the fertility of the human population as a whole, it's the the rapidly declining fertility of men that is going to be the biggest issue. So the global sperm count has halved in the past 30 years. It's dropped by 50%, and it's trending to zero by 2040, which oh means that by 2040, the majority of couples will struggle to conceive naturally because the sperm count on average across the male population will be zero. And wow. the reason for this is uh, environmental factors, mm-hmm. sedentary lifestyle, and then the, the growing prevalence of chronic diseases. Chronic diseases that could be everything from diabetes to its much earlier precursor insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, insulin resistance. It's funny that you mentioned that because a lot of people now are realizing that they are insulin resistant because of their lifestyle, their diet, or, or whatnot. Okay, what are other biases that you are trying to tackle? I mean, apart from infertility, what are the what are other gender or racial biases that you're trying to tackle? Gosh, there are so many. <laughs> I mean, mention maybe like the top three or, or so just think, any three. Yeah. Um, I think biases that really uh, prevent women from uh, accessing the same opportunities perhaps as their male counterparts are those around um, postpartum mm-hmm. recovery and, and, and perimenopause. Right. Um, so in the UAE at the moment, if you pl- apply for an individual insurance premium, um, perimenopause, or, or if you put down menopause, is categorized as a pre-existing condition. Oh. And so your insurance premium would automatically go up if you said you were perimenopausal. The minimum you would be quoted would be about 35,000 dirham. Wow. Per annum. Um, wow. At the moment, there is not... Uh, so insurance will not cover hormone replacement therapy or, in fact, any of the therapies that are commonly recommended for women going through perimenopause. So all um, of the the things that you might need to support you with the 35-plus symptoms that you experience going through menopause mm-hmm. are currently not supported at all by the existing healthcare ecosystem from a financial perspective Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that's an example of a bias Mm -hmm. Um, and again if we think about the the ramifications of this for women in the workforce you know a lot of companies now have set um, very strongly worded DEI mandates for themselves they're going to try and attract and retain more female talent Mm. they're going to try and get more women to senior leadership positions they want more women on the board what do you think most of those women are going through when they're trying to push for those senior leadership 
and, and board level positions, perimenopause. Mm. So if you don't have adequate support for women at that point in their lives, and today the healthcare ecosystem, you can have the best health care insurance, but ultimately that health insurance is a gateway to the established healthcare ecosystem. If right. that system is not set up to support women through perimenopause, then then they will not be supported. Yeah. Um, another a good bias is potentially around um, postpartum rehabilitation. Um, so there's this assumption that um, uh, kind of women need to bounce back after giving birth. Oh, yeah. And there's now a, a countercultural movement that says women don't need to bounce back. Mm -hmm. And that's because when we think about bouncing back, what we're predominantly thinking about is how women look. But actually, bouncing back physically, mentally, for women to get to that place where they really feel like themselves again is really important. Right. Because you need to be strong physically mentally nutritionally to to deal with this 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 life that you have created mm -hmm. you need to be physically strong so that you and, and rehabilitated so that you don't end up with things like incontinence and prolapse particularly as you as you enter perimenopause where hormonal changes may exacerbate these things mm -hmm. um so there is a need for women to rehabilitate themselves postpartum but not in the way that maybe um, the media portrays yes and for women to understand how that happens and to access care for it is still today is very difficult yeah um, you cannot submit a claim with most insurance providers for pelvic floor rehabilitation and have it covered by insurance insurance will cover a claim for back pain but they won't and so, so for the physiotherapy to rehabilitate back yeah. pain but if you have a, a weakened pelvic floor causing incontinence or you have um, abdominal muscle separation that mm -hmm. wouldn't be covered by insurance so most doctors today yeah. if they want to help women physically rehabilitate will submit a claim for back pain of course um, but that's another bias that exists mm. so this this idea that um, either bouncing back is essential or counterculturally bouncing back is bad mm -hmm. but the idea that we need to support women in come getting back to the, a good place from a physical and a mental perspective is kind of not discussed in the right way and not enabled by the system. Right. Okay. So this is actually a good segue into the next question, and it relates back to a point that you were just speaking about. Um, why, so tell me why, uh, why do you think companies need to rethink these health services that they're offering their their women, or not health services, but the, the insurance policies that they're offering women in the company? And I feel like, are they matching it? You were saying, you know, a lot of these companies are saying, oh, we want more, more women in leadership positions. We want more women to grow. They want to meet that, they want to check that box. But are you living up to that promise or that, that I, don't, I don't know what to call it, but are you living up to that expectation that women have when they come into your company? That is a lot of questions. Yeah, sorry, I was it's just related. It's a loaded question. It is a loaded but question. <laughs> a question loaded with many other questions. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, are companies living up to expectations? What is stopping companies from providing women with the care they need? Okay, um, I'll, I'll take a step back. Actually, mm -hmm. um, I think one of the biggest problems is that no company wants to admit that it is not doing the right thing by its employees. Of course. And no company wants to admit that it is offering fundamentally different services and care to its men versus its mm -hmm. women. Um, and that's one of the challenges, is explaining to companies, we know you want to do the best by your employees. This 
this bias that we're talking about, it's not with you. Mm-hmm. It's with the established healthcare ecosystem. And that has a long legacy that actually has nothing to do with the healthcare providers here mm-hmm. and everything to do with how um, clinical trials were conducted, the process of including people in clinical trials, like the way that that was set up. Right. So you need to make it, you're not there to, to accuse anybody. Of what course. you're there to do is to say, we know you have this mandate that you want to hit and it's a good thing because diversity in companies increases profitability. That's been proven. Right. Um, and these these are the ways that, these are the things you're going to have to acknowledge mm-hmm. and this is a way we can address them. Mm-hmm. Um, why is traditional healthcare not meeting the needs of women? We've already covered some of that, some yes. of the systemic gender and racial biases in healthcare. But why fundamentally is it not addressing the needs of women? It's because traditional healthcare was not designed to treat chronic diseases. And today, mm-hmm. chronic diseases are the majority of the disease burden they and it's increasing. Mm-hmm. Of course. When... when Hospitals, the likes of which we see today, were built in the early 1900s. 85% of the things that they were there to treat were acute diseases, pneumonia, broken limbs, right. um, a lot of respiratory diseases, a lot of infectious diseases that don't exist anymore. Yeah, they're like, they need a one-time treatment and that's it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you diagnose the disease, you treat the disease, it goes away and so does the and person. And that's it, yeah. Unfortunately today... Um, uh, acute diseases only account, or fortunately, only account for thirty percent. Seventy percent of the disease burden is chronic. It doesn't matter how much you uh, intervene or prescribe for a chronic disease, because at the heart of a chronic disease is lifestyle factors. Of course, that disease doesn't go away. So the person keeps coming back. They take more drugs. They have exactly. more interventions. They become dependent on very expensive things mm-hmm. that were designed to be used as a one-off. And then not again, hopefully right. for years. Um, and so you've got a traditional healthcare system that is not really built to support the majority of the disease burden. And in women, that includes things like polycystic ovary syndrome, mm-hmm. endometriosis, ulcerative colitis, any number of different gut issues, autoimmune diseases, right. as well as the, the other um, kind of uh, non-gender specific diseases that you might um, that you might think of automatically when you mm-hmm. think chronic disease. Um, but it also means that uh, the health insurance, which is there to act as a gateway to traditional healthcare, is also becoming untenable mm-hmm. for a lot of the, for the people who purchase it, whether that's companies or individuals. And that's because health insurance and the clues in the name was mm-hmm. meant to be there for emergencies only. You're not meant to use it as a kind of a bedrock for your care. Mm. It's not meant to be the thing that you use to keep you well or to prevent you from becoming accidentally unwell. It's there if in an emergency you need to access something that can help you with that emergency. Right. Okay. And so what we're seeing now is because um, historically there haven't been alternatives, health insurance is just going up and up. It's like, mm. okay, you want physio, you want support for mental health, you want support for chronic diseases. Sure, we can support this, but then it's going to cost you, um, as an individual, uh, 90,000 dirham an annum, yeah. per annum. We had a woman in one of the groups the other day who was asking for help because she had put ulcerative colitis as a pre-existing condition on her okay. application. At the minimum, she was quoted for a year was 93,000 dirham. Wow. That's yeah. that's a lot. It's a huge amount. It's a lot. Where do you get ninety three thousand dirham from? Yeah, along with your 
other expenses massive yeah. expenses yeah of course um and then and so for individuals the 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 burden of chronic diseases is being felt much more prominently much more immediately it's becoming an issue a lot of people just aren't buying health insurance for themselves yes. now yes of especially course. especially freelancers sometimes for two three four years basically as long as they can get away with it um for companies um where you have a group premium you don't need to declare chronic diseases up front they don't ask about chronic diseases oh but if those chronic diseases result in claims against the premium the premium goes up okay by 10 20 50 80 percent the following year and then every year it goes up so you have a population of 500 employees let's say you're fortunate enough to be paying say 2,000 dirham per head per annum that's mm -hmm. a million dirham of premium mm -hmm. you get one stage four cancer diagnosis that and we already up. talked about the fact that 80% of breast cancers, for example, are diagnosed at stage four. Yeah. That's 400 to 600,000 dirhams worth of treatment. Your premium will go up by a minimum of 50% the following year. Oh, my goodness. Wow. See, these are things you would never think of. Like, as an employee, I would never know that. I would never know no. any of that. No. And so, and, and imagine you're a, you're, so if, you're, if you have fewer than 150 employees, you don't have to declare your claims history the following year. So okay. if you have fewer than 150 employees, you could just rotate through insurance providers and be quoted roughly the same thing every year. Okay. If you have more than 150 employees, they, insurance providers can see your claims history and so you can't escape that like reliable increase right. in premium. Right, right. But imagine you have 151 employees. You've just passed the 150 mark. Yeah. And unbeknownst to you, there's somebody within your organization who is who has a history of fibroids and polyps and, you know, estrogen nom dominance that is growing these things and they yeah. found a lump and they don't know about it and there isn't the support for it and it's not being spoken about in the workplace and they're worried that they'll get fired if they bring it up because cancer treatment is expensive and it's time-consuming. And and that's time off from work and then so you're... And exactly. Of course, of course, yeah. Um, and, you know, we're, we're obviously... Um, in breast cancer awareness at the m month at the moment and, and thinking about it and talking about it a lot and that's why it's a good example to give but there are hundreds of chronic diseases yeah. for which this assessment is also relevant mm -hmm. and if companies aren't switched on to the fact that an unhealthy workforce could result in in your, in your insurance premium doubling the following right. year that's dangerous for companies. Of it's course. it's dangerous for the ecosystem. You know, there's a we we know that chronic diseases are increasing to rise, mm -hmm. it, it, continuing to rise. If they aren't managed effectively within um within the ecosystem by companies who are the primary payers for healthcare, at some point it means that a lot of those companies will become unsustainable. Yeah, of course. And and as you said, an unhealthy environment or work environment or an unhealthy workforce leads to much greater losses and not just financially. It means yeah, much, much higher turnover. Yeah. Um, globally, they reckon that 6 to 7% of payroll um, goes towards poorly managed chronic conditions in a, in a workforce. But yeah, I mean, and this is like... We haven't even got on at this particular point to talking about the actual benefits for yeah. your workforce if you effectively manage their health. Yeah. The fact that they then, you know, um, let's say you're a couple that is wanting to have a baby. Per IVF cycle, you will take on average, as a woman, 8.7 days of sick leave. And a lot of, yeah. a lot of couples will go through multiple rounds of IVF to conceive. Yes. 
if you could conceive naturally and then have a low risk pregnancy, the amount of time you took off work, uh, firstly, would be much lower. Mm-hmm. How present you were when you were at work would be much yes. higher because you're not worrying about all of these appointments and, and the fact that you're navigating a high risk pregnancy. Right. There's so much benefit associated with really investing in your people's health of course um we had a i was reminded very palpably of this the other day actually we had a new dietitian join us who's also a new mother and it became obvious after a few days that she was really struggling leaving her baby at home and i hope she won't mind me telling this story (laughs) beautiful beautiful woman and a very gorgeous baby oh <laughs> anyway and and you could see it was really affecting her yeah and um we have a so the the clinic that we have in Jamira, we have an indoor outdoor play area for children all of the rooms have toys in them but we also have a full-time caretaker who is there to look after children that come in with their parents right and um we said please just bring your baby to work have her here yeah, you don't have to leave her. Like, bring her with you every day. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd be an honor and a pleasure for us to have her here on site with us. And so now she does, and she's much happier. Oh, that's so you know? sweet! Surprise, surprise. Yes, exactly. Um, and it's such a. She has her. You know, her nanny comes with her. It's such a little thing. It's mm-hmm. such an easy thing. It makes such a big difference for her. And, you know, I've got four children. My youngest is five months old. I take her with me to most things. Okay. I'd be heartbroken, especially in the early stages, if if I had to leave her behind all the time, if I felt like I was missing things. It doesn't yes. take much to make women's lives a lot easier. Not really. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. And it shouldn't be a punishment. I'm sorry. Like, I'm just going to say it because a lot of women... I mean, at this day and age, it doesn't make sense for one of the two to work. We're, no. It's a fast-paced life. It's an expensive life that we live the, these days. I'm not just talking about the UAE. I'm talking about in general, like in, in worldwide. It makes sense for both people to work. So a woman shouldn't be punished because she's working and because she wants to. And even if it's not for financial reasons, what if a woman wants to feel accomplished or she enjoys her job? Why shouldn't she enjoy it and enjoy the company of her child and not feel guilty about leaving her child behind or not giving them the attention and care that they deserve at such a young age? And I... It's it's upsetting that, you know, when you were talking about it, it's upsetting that a woman would feel like, you know, she feels guilty for leaving her child behind. It's uh, it's heartbreaking. It is. And it's funny that you use the word punish. So the woman who did the a lot of the initial research on the wage gap in the US has just been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Yes. Um, And she um, she talks about this. She talks about the fact that uh, women and mothers in particular are punished financially for having children whereas fathers financially are rewarded so mothers earn less than their male counterparts fathers earn uh, than their female and male counterparts yes fathers earn more than their female and male counterparts yes so it is actually the case that mothers are punished for having children again where their male counterparts are rewarded for it yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) 